Fear and worry are uh, pretty big deals in our world right now. If not multi-million dollar deals, they are a big deal. They affect us as Christians. But I'm reminded of a famous story by Daniel Defoe. Some people believe this story actually is somewhat biographical. It's called Robinson Crusoe. If you're familiar with Robinson Crusoe, you'll know how the story ends. But the setup of the story is pretty amazing. So Crusoe, his father pleaded with him to stay home, to follow the Lord, to be a good son. But he decides to go the route of the prodigal and chases after wealth and adventure and recklessness and godlessness. Following this adventure, he gets on a boat and gets in a terrible storm, and the storm wrecks the boat, and he ends up being stranded on an island all by himself in the Caribbean. At this point, he's pretty destitute. He's pretty upset. And then he comes across a Bible. He begins reading this Bible, and he goes from being a God-forsaken, reckless pagan to a godly, committed Christian, walking the island reading his Bible, praying to the Lord. The communion that he had with God at this point was phenomenal. Every single day. No companions of the human sort, but a companion of the God sort. Until one day he's walking along and he sees a footprint in the sand. He realizes it's not his footprint, and he realizes he is not alone on the island. His mind goes right where it should have gone, which is, there is someone here on this island, and I know these islands are settled by a tribe of cannibals. And so his mind goes to, what's going to happen to him now? He's invaded by fear. He's invaded by worry. No longer does he walk somewhere without looking over his shoulder. No longer does he sleep peacefully through the night, because every sound is a clear cannibal ready to eat him. He visualizes being captured and boiled and devoured. He alters all of his habits because of this fear. He says, thus my fear banished all my religious hopes, all the former confidence I had in God, which was founded on the wonderful experience of his goodness, had now vanished. See, the ironic thing is, is that God was just as close to him when he saw the footprint as he was before and after. What had changed was his perspective. Fear got a hold of him. Fear took over him. And he forgot the truth that Jesus triumphs over our fears. So here is our big idea today. Faith in Jesus triumphs over our fears. It's as simple as that. Faith in Jesus triumphs over our fears. And if we're honest, fear has been something that's been on our minds, especially the last two years. But if you've been alive for any amount of time, there's always something to fear. When in trouble, looking to Jesus for salvation is good. Panicking while he is present is not. In our overwhelming moments, Jesus is with us. In our calling out to him, he will save us. Why? Because faith in Jesus triumphs over our fears. So there's two things in this passage that we got to get our minds wrapped around. The first one is Jesus, as God, has authority over everything. We see him calm the storm. He has authority over it all. And secondly, we see that the disciples, they don't get it. They have not gotten it yet. So if you want to see a basic outline for this passage, 
We start with, they follow Jesus onto the boat. This is a good thing. They're following Jesus. And then fear arises because of the storm. This is an opportunity, an opportunity for them to show their faith, to show that they are trusting in Jesus. So they run to Jesus, which is a good thing. However, they run to him because they're afraid that he's forgotten them. He's uh, going to let them die, that he is, is, is not caring for them because their fear has gotten greater than their faith. And then the last thing we do is we see Jesus breaking all expectations. He stands up and he calms the storm. And he says, I am in charge of the storm. I control all of this. Whatever has happened is under my control. So to kind of re review even where we've been, we started off chapter 8 with Jesus breaking down the wall. Breaking down our greatest need, which is we have a wall between us and God. This was exemplified in the temple with the curtain that keeps us out of his presence because of our sin, because of our failing. And then last week, we saw how there were two would-be disciples that wanted to approach Jesus on their own terms and said, I'll follow you, Jesus, if you do this. And now we have these disciples. These are the names we are familiar with. Peter, James, John, Andrew. These guys are all there. And yet they don't get it. Maybe that's encouraging to us today. But it's not all bad. You know, a lot of times when we look at the disciples, we look at it and go, oh, how could they be so dumb? It's not all bad. The disciples do some good here. They start off by following Jesus. That's a good thing. They cry out to Jesus. Also a good thing. But it shows that their hearts were not where they were supposed to be when they cry out for the wrong reasons. When they doubt his goodness. When they doubt his power. All of this shows that their faith is not mature yet. So we got to remember, we're in process here, and there is a destination we want to get to. So let's start looking at verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So the disciples followed Jesus onto the boat. It's a good thing. This is the core group. Now, is it all 12? No, not necessarily, because he still hasn't called a few of them. But these are the core followers. These are the ones that are Jesus' crew. This is not a big ocean liner. This is a fishing vessel. Could hold, at maximum, 15 people. So it's a small group. This is the inner group. In the last section, he had called them to follow, and these disciples are following. They've given up all sorts of things. We talked about how they, they left family. They left professions. To come and follow Jesus. Now, it's important that we grasp something right here. This promise, this big idea of Jesus, the faith in Jesus triumphing over our fears, is for kingdom citizens only. This is not something for everyone everywhere. It's for those who have renounced their citizenship in the world, saying, I am not going to follow the world's ways. I'm going to follow Jesus' ways. And we've seen this already with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been laying out, my followers look like this. And right here, this promise is for you if you are a follower of Christ. So maybe you're going, but I'm in bondage to fear. Fear runs everything of mine. It runs everything I do from the moment I wake up to when I go to bed. Fear runs me. So there's two options here and only two. One is that you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if that's the case, he's taking applications today. He will welcome you into the kingdom today. 
And you can begin feeling this lack of fear. This fear no longer overwhelming. On the other side, it may be that you are a kingdom citizen. But just like the disciples, you're forgetting the fact that God is in control. We fast forward a little bit. We remember the story of Peter walking on the water. His eyes are on Christ. He's walking on the water. His eyes are off Christ. He's sinking. It's the same story over and over again. Isn't it good that the disciples needed it drilled in a few times? Makes me feel good about how many times the Lord's had to drill it into me. Amen? So we, we need to see this right from the start. If this is foreign to you, if fear is running you. Now, I'm not saying you can't have fears. Jesus never says, don't fear anything. He says, if you have the fears, understand them in the right perspective, in the right order. Just like we saw last week, where family doesn't get to be over God. Future doesn't get to be over God. My plans don't get to be over God. They all are in submission to God. Same thing goes here. My fears do not get to be over God. The same solution. It's Jesus himself. So where are these guys going? What, what, why are they getting in a boat? Well, in verse 18, Jesus issues the command, we're going to the other side. All right? And they don't say why. They doesn't, Jesus doesn't say it's to avoid the crowd. We don't know. But we do know that he is going to the other side. What is he going to the other side of? Well, he's going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a 13-mile-long by 7-mile-wide freshwater, uh, like little mini ocean. It's kind of like a lake, but a little bit bigger. It's only 150 feet deep. Its shoreline is 680 feet below sea level. And it's bordered on each side by mountains, some of which rise to nearly 10,000 feet. And it is known that this, this little sea, the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, has like six different names just to keep us on our toes, that this sea would have huge squalls come flying through all the time. Fishermen there would go, this is just another storm. They prepare for the storm. However, this storm is so bad that well-versed fishermen say, this is it, we're done. How bad would that storm have to be for fishermen who'd spent their whole life on that sea to all of a sudden say, we're done. Verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. This word great storm, I love it in the Greek. It's megas seismos, right? Megas as in mega, right? Huge. And then seismos. Now that's a weird word for a storm. It's where we get the word seismograph or the seismic scale. It's a word for earthquake. So this storm is a gigantic earthquake. As in, the water is moving like an earthquake. And if you've ever been in an earthquake before, it feels like the earth is doing waves. And that's the picture that Matthew gives us here. This is a furious storm. It's a violent storm. It's a terrifying storm. And when it says they were swamped, it meant covered with water. So this is a big storm. So the second thing we see here in, in verse 24, we saw first they followed Jesus, and now we see fear arising. This fear rises, and it's an opportunity. This is an opportunity for them to grow in faith. It's an opportunity for them to show their faith, but it's an opportunity. See, now, we have to put ourselves in the minds of the people that would have heard this the first time. 
So if we were going to rewind back into the first century, and we've got all sorts of new believers. And these new believers became Christians because they either met a disciple or a disciple of a disciple. Okay? So they're hanging out, you know, whatever city they're in. Maybe they're in Jerusalem in about 60 AD. They're sitting there, and they're like, can you tell us the story of Jesus? Because I know Matthew, he's right over here, and he's told me some stuff. Can you tell me the story? Or, hey, I know Peter, or I met Paul, these great disciples. They're so amazing. So they pull out the scroll, and we're reading through it. And with bated breath, they don't know what's going to happen next. And they get to this storm, and they're going, they pull out the popcorn. Oh, who's it going to be? Is it going to be Peter that's going to calm the storm? Oh, I bet you, you know, I'm, I'm putting my money on John because him and Jesus, they're like this. What, who's it going to be? They're waiting. And then it isn't any of them. Think about how crazy that would have been for them to hear. Wait a sec. You're telling me that the disciples didn't get it? They just heard Jesus teaching. They've already seen amazing things from him. And then the first opportunity they have to put their faith in him, and they mess it up? That can't be right. Is that really right? Is that, do you read that wrong? No. This is exactly what happened. They had the opportunity, but they did not step up. Verse 25. They went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Save us, rescue us. So they run to Jesus for help. Also, a good idea. Run to Jesus for help. And it doesn't have to be in just the storm, but in every situation. Were they actually perishing? No. Were they in trouble? Yes. Did they have reason to fear? Yes. But as they're fearing, they're also doubting the goodness of the Lord. And I'll show you where that is here in a second. But I want to take another little aside. There's a, little, there's a little thing here that I, I didn't catch until I was talking to one of the other preachers this weekend. And he said, this save us, Lord, we are perishing, sure sounds like one of the psalms we did this last summer. So if you're, if you're new here, if you don't remember, every summer we do a chunk of psalms. It's called the Songs of Summer. We do standalone psalms every single summer. Now, I don't think this was an accident, but starting in 2020, most of our psalms have been laments. This crying out to the Lord and saying, why is it happening this way, Lord? And if you know your Psalms, you know there's always a cry, and then almost every single time there's a, but I'm going to trust in the Lord. Or, but Lord, you're going to provide. See, what we've got right here in this passage is we've got a little mini lament, a little mini Psalm. And instead of the the disciples going, oh, but God's going to bring it around, we get to see God actually bring it around, don't we? We get to see Jesus in the flesh, the God-man, actually do what the psalmists believe he's going to do. He steps in and he shows up. He's there and he calms the storm. So remember, when we cry out, he is there. He wants you to know that. John Mason said, regret looks back, worry looks around, faith looks up. So you remember, Jesus had just said, don't worry about dying. Worry about really living. That's what we talked about last week. But there's even more. See, hidden in this, this word perishing, this word perishing we saw a little bit earlier. In in chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus says, there's a path to destruction, but don't worry, you're not on it because you're on the path with me. That word destruction is the Greek word 
apolia, which the verb form of is apolomai, which is the word they're using right here. So they are referencing this idea of destruction. What they're saying is, Jesus, wait, you said we were on the road to not destruction, and we're on the road to destruction now. You got us on the wrong place, Jesus, you're, you're wrong. You see the problem here? They're doubting the goodness of the Lord. They're saying, Lord, this is a mistake. You got me in the wrong place. This can't be right. This is why Jesus is so frustrated. This is why he says, you have little faith. You're following the God of the universe who rebukes the sea and the wind, and you don't get it, but they will. And praise be to God, they will, because we can too. Jesus is probably going, wait a sec, didn't, didn't I just say, we're going to the other side? I didn't say, I hope we make it. He said, we're going there. I have command, I have said this is what we're doing, and you're doubting me, not to mention doubting the fact that I am on the path to life, not destruction. Charles Spurgeon said a story one time about a woman on board a ship, and it started to get rocky, and her husband was the captain. And she looked over at him and she said, what is your deal? Why are you not freaking out? This storm is terrible. He didn't answer her. Instead, he went over and got his sword off the wall. And he went over and he pointed it at her. And she chuckled. And he goes, well, why aren't you scared? She says, I know my husband would never hurt me. And the captain goes, that's why I'm not scared, because I know my God is in control. See, the issue here, the issue of faith is not that we believe that there is a God, but do we believe in what that God teaches us? Do we believe in what he says? Do we trust him? Do we say, okay, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know that you're right here with me, and you will get me through it. So the first thing they did was they ran to Christ, which was the right thing, but their reasons were wrong. Verse 26, and he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So they thought Jesus didn't care. They thought Jesus was leading them to death when he had promised them that he wasn't. See, their fear had gotten the better of their faith, and this was their bad example. When he says, oh, you of little faith, it literally means you little faiths. And I'm, again, I'm back to that pilgrim progress, pilgrim's progress, where everybody's name corresponds. The disciples are the little faiths. The disciples are not effective faiths. This is not that they have no faith. It's just that their faith is not effective. It's not efficient. It's defective. So what exactly is faith? Oswald Chambers says, faith is a deliberate confidence in the character of God, whose ways we do not understand at the time. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Augustine said, faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of faith is seeing what you believe. Faith is not belief without proof. It's trust without reservation. So notice what Jesus doesn't say here. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go back to sleep. When your guys' faith has gotten a little bit bigger, come get me. Instead, he takes what comes to him and he says, all right, let me take care of this. He immediately goes to work. Even little faith is still faith. But faith, the way Jesus wants us to relate to him, as important as it is, is not the theme here. The theme is that Jesus saves those who are weak in faith. Jesus saves those who are strong in faith because Jesus is about saving. 
So what should the disciples have done? We had a lively discussion about this in our preaching meeting. What should they have done? Pulled up a mat, laid next to Jesus? Should they have just kind of bided their time? Should they have said, could you stop this storm? It's kind of interfering with my sleep patterns. What should they have done? And the answer is, we're not told what they should have done. Jesus doesn't say, you should have done this. But what he does say is he says, you shouldn't doubt me. Because Jesus presupposes that faith drives out fear. He rebukes his disciples because the fear has driven out their faith. Clearly, they had enough faith to cry out to Jesus. They didn't try to find a new version of the boat or talk to one of the sailors. Instead, they went to Jesus with the problem. But they are astonished by the miracle and wowed by it. So they're still not there yet. Notice it says that Jesus rebuked the storm. This means to command. It's a strong imperative of you're in the wrong storm, stop. But there are two rebukes here, if we're honest. The disciples first and the storm second. The storm gets the rebuke and responds like that. And we know the disciples don't respond quite yet. They still have to wait till Jesus is dead and risen from the grave before they get it. It says there was a great calm. Again, megas is the word great. And then the word galian, which means peace or restraint. It's a peaceful restraint of the storm. Jesus restrains the storm and says, you're done. You cannot do anymore. The Amplified Version says a perfect peacefulness. The message says smooth as glass. See, the creation recognizes the creator instantly. When the creator says you're done, it's done. It's us creatures that have the problem. We don't quite get it like we should. Because see, if the disciples had seen Jesus as he truly is, then their response to the storm would have been different. But it becomes clear that they had not gotten it yet. See, we have the whole picture we have the full story. The disciples, it's still in the future for them. We have the full picture. We must get this now. We must get this right now. We've got to put legs on this faith so that tomorrow or today or as soon as this service is over and you have something laid in front of you to fear, that we go, no, my God is in control. That this fear that is running my life, that is running the world out here and is trying to put its tendrils into us does not have control we must see this right now we cannot wait till the end of the book verse 27 the men marveled saying what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him jesus calms the storm it's pretty amazing he didn't have to do that he could have just said you guys need to go take a nap with me let's go lay down but he calms the storm because he has compassion on his disciples. Not because they were going to die. If it wasn't their time, they were going to be immortal until their time to go. But at that moment, he says, you guys need this. So I'm going to calm this storm. Now let's take a little break for a second. I want to point something out. I can't help it. Apologetics is the defense of Christianity. It's something that I love to read about. And there is an apologetic point here that I want to make. So imagine with me if you're going to be writing a history book about something really important, okay? So you're going to write a history book, and you're in the story, and you're writing the book. But as you begin looking back on the history, you start going, wow, I was really dumb. I, I didn't do very well. See, one of the things that people say about the Bible is that this is made up. 
You know, Mark interviewed Peter, but they just made up stuff, or Matthew made up stuff, John just made up stuff, Luke sat down and interviewed people and just made up random things. The problem with that is, is if I'm making up a story in which I'm in it, I'm not going to show how dumb I actually am. The fact that these disciples over and over and over, and again, remember, like I said a minute ago, these guys are the heroes of the people who are reading the Gospels 30 years after Jesus died. These are the heroes, right? I mean, think about, think about how bad Peter's going to feel. Peter's sitting right here. They unroll the scroll, and they're reading along. And Peter walked on the walk, and then... We'll skip down a little bit, Peter. Okay. Or, or, or the denying of Jesus. I mean, why do you include that? Peter is the leader in the church. Why do you include the denying of Jesus? You want to know why? Because it actually happened. So when someone says, well, the Bible's all made up, you can just go, hey, you know what? There's all these times when these big-name people screwed up. They didn't get what was right in front of them. And they didn't just do it once. Praise the God. Praise the Lord, right? Because that gives us hope. They didn't just do it once. They did it over and over and over again. And this is why these stories are here. One of the many reasons why is so that we can be encouraged to say, you know what, the disciples, because we like to think that if Jesus came in right here, right now, we would all get it. Some of us would be like, you know what, he's tracking in mud. You know what, I wouldn't dress like that if I was Jesus. Does he really have to wear his hair that way? Oh, man, you know, I really got somewhere I got to be in a little. We have all sorts of reason to not follow him. And the disciples were the same way. They were right there with him. And they missed it and missed it and missed it again. And this lets us know, just, just bask in the knowledge that this is true history. This is not myth. This is not made up. Because if you're making it up, you're going to make yourself look really good. And the, the disciples didn't get it. We've already seen they were called, they were trained, they, they follow him, and then the, this is the first opportunity they have to get it right, and they mess it up. They mess it up. So we can be just like them, but we can also get to where they went with their faith. So the story is passed on to these disciples because they want to encourage us. Look at this phrase that they said, what sort of man is this? Now, in the verse right before it, it says, the men marveled, and then what sort of man is this? So Matthew's doing a little something here. That first word, men, is the word anthropoi, which is just where we get the word anthropology. It means man. But then that second word, go ahead and put it back up there, Kyle, is patapos, patapos, which is a Greek word that means where are you from? Let me translate it into modern English. What planet is this guy from? <laughs> That's literally what it means. It's where did, what country are you from? Where did you come from? You're not from this place. You're not from this earth. And Jesus' answer is as simple as this. He is not of this earth because he made this earth. Look what Psalm 89, Aaron read it at the beginning of the sermon. 18, or the beginning of the service. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. See, Jesus, by doing this miracle, is attaching himself to hundreds of passages that says the seas will be calmed by God and God alone. Jesus is the master of all nature. 
He's saying, this is who I am. See who I am. And they still, they, they start to get it because they go, you're not from around here. You're from somewhere else, aren't you? See, we need to face the fact that our God is in control and that our fears, we need to have faith in the God who is greater than our fears. In the midst of this storm, these experienced fishermen are going, ah, we have no hope. Yet, the Lord meets them there. The Lord meets them there. See, faith is a form of bravery. Faith is a form of bravery. Have you ever thought about it like that? The Bible does, though. In the New Testament, it's not simply, I passively accept something, or a resignation, or I just believe. No, instead, it's courageous confidence, even when the situation gets hard. Think about the courage of the leper to approach someone for the first time about the centurion? Or how about the courage of the followers of Jesus to forsake all money, to forsake all family? That's their safety net. There's no social security. There's no welfare. There's no government to step in. They forsake it all. And just walk through Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 33, 34, 36, 37, 39. Every single one. Here's what they gave up. Here's what they gave up. Here's what they gave up. Think of Peter and John declaring the gospel in the temple and suffering beatings and persecution. Paul, I mean, Paul's list of all the things that he suffered, but yet was courageous. He had fearless faith. As a matter of fact, we don't even need to put the word fearless in front of faith because it's redundant, because faith itself is fearless. Let me show you a very famous passage that everybody here probably either has heard or memorized before. Philippians 1.21 for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's one of the most amazing passages Paul has ever uttered. But again, when we read it out of its full context, we miss something. So let's look at the verse right before it. This is Paul saying, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying, I need the courage, Lord, and you're going to give me the courage. And the courage is here because I have faith in the God who my faith is in. And I know this God. And because of that, I am courageous. Jesus had rebuked them as cowards, as little faiths. Faith means confidence in Jesus in all circumstances. Faith means courage. Faith means the opposite of panic. Faith is not courage that comes from our self-confidence, but our God-confidence. Faith is courage that comes that Jesus is equal to whatever danger we may see. And then Jesus responds. Isn't that great? That Jesus responds. He rebukes them. He chides them. And he doesn't just go back to sleep. Wake me up when it's done. He responds to their fears and he says, I'll take care of this. Even though it's little faith, I will take care of it. So we can be assured that Jesus does respond. He does respond to our cries for help. Don't wait for your faith to grow big before you start calling out to the Lord. Call out to him throughout. The Psalms are a blueprint on how to do that. Call out to him. It doesn't have to be a big storm. It can be something small. It can be something as simple as, I have to have a hard conversation in a few minutes. I need help, Lord. Cry out to him. We know the outcome. We know the one who's in charge. And so we can be brave. 
Spurgeon writes, There is nothing in the Bible to make any man fear who puts his trust in Jesus. Nothing in the Bible, did I say? There's nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing in hell that need make you fear who trust in Jesus. The past, you need not fear it, for it's forgiven. The present, you need not fear it, for it is provided for. The future, you need not fear it. It's secured by the living power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I love that picture. Native Americans, when, when, when settlers came here to North America, Native Americans had this tradition. What they would do is they would train up young men. They called them braves. And when they got to 13 years old, they had a very unique thing that they would do. They had already taught them how to hunt. They taught them how to scout. They taught them how to fish. But there was one final test. The young brave was blindfolded and taken out into a dense forest right at nightfall. They took the, the blindfold off. The brave opens up his eyes. The young man opens up his eyes and sees that he is in pitch black. Only the light of some stars and maybe the moon if he was lucky. And he is to sit there all night long. Terrifying. Every time a twig pops or cracks, he visualizes a wild animal ready to pounce. After what seems like an eternity, finally dawn begins to break and the young man sees that he's sitting in a meadow. He's sitting in a wide open area with flowers and a trail and he begins to feel encouraged and then he looks and he sees something he didn't expect. He sees a man standing in the forest. He walks a little closer. He realizes it's his father. His father was there the whole night with a bow and an arrow and a knife to protect his son from anything that would have hurt him. How, how, how would that son's time in the forest have been if he knew his father was right there watching over him? Is that not the picture that we see here with Jesus? The promise is not that our storms will be taken away. He doesn't promise that. Or that Jesus will still every single storm once it arrives. The promise is, I am with you in the storm. But it's better than that. It's not just, hey, we've got a friend to be right here in the storm. No, I've got the God of the universe, the God-man, the second member of the Trinity right there with me. So we have nothing to fear. At this point, I, I wonder if Matthew remembers where he started his book. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. You're all familiar with this passage from Christmas. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, there's the saving part we see right here. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken in the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, God is with us. Faith triumphs over fear because he is with us. Faith triumphs over fear because he is with us. So are you going to follow this God-man? Are you going to follow Christ? Faith is not confidence that our trials, trials won't come our way. Faith is the confidence that no matter what comes our way, the God of the universe is right in the boat with us. His power and his presence 
He will see us through. You followers of Christ, you Christians, you are not alone, and ultimately you are safe in the presence of the one who has the authority over all disasters. Faith in Jesus triumphs over our fears because he is there with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this story that you inspired Matthew to write down. Thank you, Lord, that it's not just a bedtime story, that it's a historical reality and it's a universal reality that you are right here with us. No matter what storm we're going through in our lives, we are not alone because the God of the universe is right there with us. And Lord, if we don't feel that right now, I pray, Lord, that you would stir that up in us, Lord, whether it's through this, these songs we're about to sing or through some quiet time with you or just, Lord, just do a work on us, Lord. If we feel fear, if we feel afraid, I pray that you would turn us to you. Help us to grow from little faiths into mega faiths. Lord, you can take us there. Please do that. In your name, amen.